Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As wildlife populations increase, so does the potential for human wildlife conflicts, which can be seen in economic losses, regulatory conflicts, and sometimes physical encounters. Terry Mesmer, director of the Berryman Institute at USU, says that wildlife managers may need to change their traditional emphasis from sustaining or increasing wildlife populations to mitigating conflicts. We're going to talk about conflicts today with Terry Mesmer and also with Mike Wolf, emeritus professor in the, of wildlife ecology and management. We're going to talk about, uh, as well as much as we can get to, and especially what you'd like to talk about, we'll talk about uh, the sage-grouse. Uh, potential effects of listing that uh, species as endangered species and of delisting the wolf. We'll also consider the phenomenon of urban deer and the management of wild horses and burrows. There are lawsuits going forward on wild horses and burrows. We may talk about uh, prairie dogs. I know people in the Parowan and uh, Paraguna area are very concerned about this. We're asking you if you have ongoing conflict in your area. We'd like to hear about it. We'd also like to know if you've had a physical encounter with, say, a mountain lion or a bear or other of these species. And we welcome in uh, Mike Wolf, Merits Professor at USU, Wildlife College and Management. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. And uh, Terry Mesper is director of the Berryman Institute at uh, USU. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Berryman Institute uh, looks at uh, the human wildlife. It, it does. It, it's, uh, the Berryman Institute was actually uh, originated back in 1994, uh, started as an academic program at Utah State to increase the, uh, the level of professionalism regarding wildlife damage management and, and put professionals out there that that when they're looking at resolving a, a human wildlife conflict issue they look at the full spectrum of, of issues and um, more recently in 2007 uh, we started publishing a, a journal uh, that uh, comes out twice a year which is focused on human wildlife conflicts it's now called human wildlife interactions and the journal itself is a, um, a journal devoted to case studies, to science, of uh, where managers and, and other stakeholders have uh, uh, addressed human-wildlife conflicts, uh, talks about the techniques, talks about the resolution, and, and also talks about some of the emerging problems. I should mention, uh, Terry Mesper is a semi-regular guest on Zesty Garden. Um, and uh, your next appearance, we'll be talking about voles. That's on March 12th. I promise, Brian, I get that plug in. Thank for, you. For that. <laughs> Mike Wolf has also appeared on Access Utah and other programs talking about bats, I think. Oh, actually, that was Zesty Garden. That was Zesty Garden as well. So we'll we'll plug Brian's program before we go forward here. Um, So uh, maybe we could start with prairie dogs. Uh, This is a kind of an interesting example. Start with Terry Mesper on this. Um, this uh, that species was was listed under the, as an endangered species. Now it's been, I think, reduced to threatened species. And there, some residents in the Parawanse or Paraguna will tell you uh, it needs to be t- completely delisted. They're they say being overrun by prairie dogs, threatening the cemetery, threatening the the airport. The the Utah prairie dog was actually one of the first group of species that was actually listed for protection under the. Uh, Endangered Species Act, uh, uh, as amended 1971, 1973. And so um, that species uh, was originally listed as endangered, and then information collected by the Division of Wildlife Resources and their partners, uh, they petitioned in 1984 to drop the status to to threaten, but it is still listed as a threatened species. Uh, um, One of the interesting things about Utah prairie dogs, uh, the recovery plan uh, calls for documenting population levels on federal land. Uh, What's ironic is uh, 
over 70% of the species inhabit private land. Mm. And so you have a situation where to meet those recovery goals, there have to be some kind of mechanisms to to uh, count, if you will, some of those species on private land. But uh, uh, more recently, what, what kind of also put a uh, – Another tangent into this whole process is a federal judge ruled that Utah prairie dogs are not protected by federal law by the Endangered Species Act under the Commerce Act because they're, they are localized populations. And so uh, that decision is undergoing another litigation and, and um, we'll hear something I would suspect in the next few months regarding whether or not that is going to be upheld. But uh, uh, regardless if it's not protected by federal law, the Utah prairie dog and all wildlife species in Utah have some level of protection under state statute. And so the Division of Wildlife Resources has a management plan in place. Uh, they're working with the interested parties to ensure that that management plan, uh, you know, conserves the species at the same time, uh, recognize uh, and protects private property rights. And in the meantime, it illustrates uh, some of the emotional component of this, right? You've prairie dogs digging up, digging up grandma's grave. Right, That's, right. Well, you, well, one of the things you about... Get, you get pretty, pretty hot. When we look at wildlife damage issues, historically it's been seen as an agricultural issue. In other words, uh, wildlife causing damage to crops, uh, alfalfa fields. Uh, in the cases of cougars, which Dr. Wolf will talk about, cougars and bears, uh, uh, coyotes, other predatory wildlife uh, causing losses to, uh, uh, to livestock. And so, but what's happened here is these populations increase as they seek uh, greener groceries or greener pasture, so to speak. Uh, uh, a lot of the conflicts that we have with Utah prairie dog uh, occur in urban situations. You mentioned uh, um, cemeteries, uh, airports, uh, golf courses, uh, urban development around the periphery of Cedar City and some other areas. And so it's not just an agricultural issue anymore. Mm. I want to uh, quote something from a, a paper uh, you wrote, Dr. Mesmer. And uh, I believe this probably appeared in this, the journal, right? Human Wildlife Conflict. Yes, it did. Yes. From 2009. So you, you say, and I'll leave out part of this and come back to it. So exotic species that have been deliberately introduced by humans may displace native species. And native species may be redefined as biological pests when they compete with or prey upon beneficial species introduced by humans. So you might think exotic species that might take you to a different idea, but then you define exotic species here as such as such as livestock, pets, agricultural crops. Right. It, you know, originally were exotic. Now, now they're necessary, and so the the original animals get redefined. Yeah. When you look at systems in the evolution of uh, an ecosystem, you know, you have plants and animals that evolve and they develop a relationship, and so there's 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 coevolution where you know there's there's certain mechanisms that uh, in, in some ways protect the species from being uh, overexploited and 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 removed. But when you you add uh, European settlers into the situation, and we 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 brought in different crops. There are things that we felt were important. And so in a lot of ways, we changed that landscape. We changed that habitat. And so so in certain cases where one species was part of that system and it was, it was evolving, it was being managed, if you will, by natural forces, uh, because of 
things that we've done, uh, we've kind of changed the landscape and, and, and created some of those problems, enhanced some of the habitat, if you will, like in the case of Utah prairie dogs. And so correspondingly, uh, um, we, had, uh, we had some, <clears throat> some population growth, some, yeah. some, which caused some of these problems. I want to turn to mountain lions, Dr. Wolf. You, you've, you've studied mountain lions for a long time, continue to, to study them. This is an interesting it takes us to a little different uh, spin on this, right? This is a, a, you know, a predator that that can kill me, right? It's a, so there's a fascination, and, and and in many cases we've encroached upon what used to be their territory, and so we're initiating the contact, and yet there's an element of fear here. Correct. Um, we actually had a study that of mountain lions that went on for about 17 years, recently completed a year or so ago. We had two study areas, as a one was down around Richfield, as on the Monroe Mountain, and the other one was basically encompassed the uh, Kennecott property, Kennecott Utah Copper, as well as Camp Williams, and so it's what we would call a peri-urban population, and so those lions actually, in some cases, went to town, so to speak, and this sort of thing. We never had any problems. We actually had GPS collars on, so we could see what they were doing, but it was all in the past because we retrieved these collars later on and this sort of thing, and so we knew what they had done. So these animals, actually, we published a paper, and they really were there, but they never, you know, uh, there were a few that were killed on the highway. Uh, One, an older female that basically she couldn't support herself otherwise. She was supporting herself on roadkill. So these things would be around, but they were never any... Uh, detrimental human interactions in that case. Not to say that they don't occur, but they they occur in a very, very low frequency. So, for instance, there was a scientist by the name of Paul Beyer back in California who uh, looked at mountain lion human encounters from like 1891 to 1991, and then he amended it and went into 2011 or something like that. And they're basically something like maybe 20 deaths that have occurred in the United States and Canada as a result of this. So it's a very low, you have a higher frequency of being killed by a bee sting than by a mountain lion. But there's something about it, and this could bring the bear thing in. I call it biophobia revisited, basically, Mm -hmm. is the fact that maybe there's this innate fear of large carnivores that even though the frequency is very, very low, it's something that we have to deal with. And there's another factor as well is the fact that we have, you mentioned this, we've encroached in what they're, and we actually sometimes encourage things. We build green belts around cities. As a boulder is the one that is probably... Mm-hmm. Uh, that brings in deer, and the mountain lions are pursuing deer, and so you put them, you juxtapose them with, uh, with humans, and you increase the probability of that doing that, this sort of thing. But the whole thing, and, and the other thing is that by, by and large, mountain lions are increasing throughout the United States, as are black bears and things like that. And so we're seeing them recolonize their former range, and in many cases, these are areas adjacent to urban, urban areas. And so you increase the potential. So even though it's small, mm-hmm. it's there. And yeah. as, a, as managers, we have to pay attention to this and see if there are lions that are behaving badly, so to speak. We may have to dispose of them or something like that. Let me follow up. So green belt, for many other reasons, is a good idea. Correct. Right? Yeah. Uh, and yet it can 
maybe ramp up a incidence of, of conflicts. Yeah, and so there, I guess we just we'll probably just have to live with that. As a, are you going to preemptively, as a you know, cleanse the hood, if you will, or something like that? Uh, so ethnic ethnic cleansing, you know, get rid of all those animals. They do this in some cases when they actually have uh, going to put out bighorn sheep. It's a transplant bighorn sheep. They'll actually go in in some cases and try and remove the predators that, uh, particularly mountain lions, that might be preying upon them. But I don't think we can do this as a preemptively, you know, in 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 suburban areas. And so we, it's it's up to us that we have to pay attention. You know, if you're jogging, riding your bicycle, or whatever, maybe do it, you know, in 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 groups or something like that. Or the other, there's a whole set of things about how to behave if you're in, have a mountain lion encounter. And, right. and the the bottom line of that is don't make yourself into a prey item. Don't run. Stand up beat on it or try and, and this sort of thing. Make yourself big. So don't don't be a prey item. So that works. I, I'm always, you know, I don't get out in nature much, but if I do, you know, I'm afraid of, uh, you know, I'm going to encounter a mountain lion or something and, and I want to know what to do. So that actually works? Well. I mean, you hope, I guess it's it's the best you can do. It's the best you can do, okay. really, more than anything else. Yeah. And the, I, I'm always taken back to, was a, there was a mountain lion fatality, I think it was in Banff or something like that. A woman was cross-country skiing with her sister or her cousin's skis. And so she looked awkward. And she was killed by a mountain lion. And mm-hmm. so this, as I, the, the lion apparently identified her as a, as a prey item. Mm-hmm. And there's one other aspect to this as well. It's a management kind of thing. Our management of mountain lions as, as, as a hunted species, okay, we focus on taking big meals, trophy meals. That's what everybody wants. And so what you do, those things are territorial, and by removing the older, the dominant males, you kind of leave a, a population of sub-adult males. And they're a bunch of teenagers. They really haven't figured things out yet. And so you actually increase the propensity or the possibility for interactions because they haven't learned, okay, I'm supposed to kill these things over here or whatever and not necessarily interact with humans. Mm. We, it's time to take a break. Let's take a break now. And when we come back, um, I'll ask uh, Dr. Mesmer. Uh, he, in, in the abstract, your paper, and in your paper is on, you're speaking to wildlife managers. And you're telling them that the focus might need to become mitigating human-wildlife conflicts. So I'll ask you, how do we do that? Maybe we could take this uh, an example from you know what, whatever conflict is happening. And there, there's no shortage of those to, to talk about. Uh, we'll also get to an email from Kylie in Moab. Thanks for that, uh, Kylie. And you can email us, hope you will, at uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. You can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. We're talking about human-wildlife conflicts. This is uh, used to be just rural. It's now urban. There's urban deer herds, for example. Uh, we're familiar with the prairie dog controversy in the southern Utah. We're asking you if you have an ongoing conflict in your area, what's being done about that. I'd also like to know if you've had a physical encounter with, say, a mountain lion or a bear. All that following this break. This is Randy Watts bringing more to life. Will you be a caregiver? For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. The role of a caretaker is no exception. Begin with your parents' wishes. 
talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for bringing more to life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Humanities Council, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Online at utahhumanities.org. Aaron Copeland was from Brooklyn, a city slicker who captured and to a certain degree created what we think of as the sound of the old American West. We'll hear from his cowboy ballet, Billy the Kid, from a concert by the U.S. Marine Band. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next performance today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As wildlife populations increase, so does the potential for human-wildlife conflicts. These can be seen in economic losses, regulatory conflicts. There are lawsuits ongoing on wild horses, for example. Uh, there's an incident in Utah. A young man was killed by a bear, and that lawsuit, I think, was just uh, concluded. Um, there are regulatory conflicts, sometimes physical encounters. Just before the break, we are talking about potential for uh, physical encounters with mountain lions. We are talking with uh, Mike Wolf, who is Professor Emeritus of Wildlife Ecology and Management at USU, and with uh, Terry Messmer, who is Director of the Berryman Institute at USU. Berryman Institute talks about human-wildlife conflicts and interactions. Uh, so, uh, during the break, Dr. Mesper, you uh, made me aware of wildawareutah.org, which I've uh, gone to, and this can help you with some of the questions that I had, incident to Dr. Wolf's um, to talking about uh, encounters with mountain lions, for example. Right. Several years ago, uh, Utah State University Extension, Berryman Institute, the division, and the Hogle Zoo got together and... and, and the idea, how, how do you get information out in a ready available form to the, to the public about living with wildlife? Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Wolf talked about cougar situations and, and how to behave. Wild Aware Utah has a website out there which actually talks about those types of things and, and how to behave in those particular encounters and those situations. And so, you know, we have a landscape that's dramatically changing. Uh, you know, wildlife management historically has been the art and science of applying ecological principles and science to manage populations for human desires. And so for a long time, when we looked at the post-war years, uh, you know, World War II years, when really we had a lot of veterans come back and go to uh, go to school to become wildlife biologists and managers. The focus was kind of to grow and to kind of build populations. And so one of the herald successes was the white-tailed deer. You know, that, you know we brought the white-tailed deer back from the, the, the brink of extinction. And so what, what's kind of happened in the, in, the, in the transition is that uh, um, we've got about 330 million people in this country. About 17 million of them actually hunt. And so from a standpoint of a wildlife management agency, you know, their, their traditional audience had been that, that 
that hunter, uh, you know, the, the individual out there to manage for those uh, desires. But what's happening is more and more the, the public is, is non-hunting. They're not hunting. And so, so we have these incidents happening of human-wildlife conflicts in urban environments. Uh, we've got the urban deer um, areas right now. Um, you know, in the state of Utah, we have an urban deer rule. Uh, 20 years ago, we didn't have an urban deer rule. Uh, we have urban wildlife biologists, which we didn't have. And so this area of, of human wildlife conflicts and trying to kind of manage those and, and, and work with an increasingly larger stakeholder population offers uh, professional wildlife managers probably uh, uh, one of the, 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 the better venues of, of trying to talk about wildlife management and wildlife conservation to a public that traditionally doesn't hunt and maybe doesn't fish. And so it's a way of kind of expanding the scope. And so the focus in wildlife management, you know, from, from managing those populations uh, is increasingly looking at how can we work with an urban public? How can we come up with solutions? How can we come up with, uh, uh, with options that are going to help that public uh, coexist with wildlife in a landscape that's dramatically changing? I might add something. Yes. So the other thing, as Dr. Mesmer pointed out, is so that Yes, so the traditional focus of the management agencies has been hunting, the hunting species and this sort of thing. But that's also been the primary source of funding for this thing. So as we see this transition, you, you almost you still have, and many of our agencies are still predominantly or almost exclusively funded by monies that comes from sportsmen, fishermen, and hunters and this sort of thing. And the question is, do I use this money or can we use this money for control of these animals, the very animals that I'm interested in hunting, and I'm trying to control them in some of their areas. So we have to continue to look, and we've been singularly unsuccessful in trying to do this, to look for other sources of funding that will take care of non-game wildlife and this sort of thing, and as well as these conflicts that we're talking about. That's a very good point. Several years ago, I was part of a program called Teaming with Wildlife, the idea to, to try to engage those stakeholders out there that don't hunt and fish in some kind of mechanism where they could fund uh, wildlife conservation through excise taxes on camera equipment and 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 uh, you know camping equipment and and uh, that was had a lot of interest but uh, it it had also a lot of opposition the idea of uh, adding a tax uh, was not very palatable in congress uh, i suppose another tack could be trying to change the minds of the sportsman groups here. I, I don't know if you've seen any movement in attitudes. Well the, well, the sportsman's group have really been, you know, for example, like with the area with urban deer right now, sportsman groups have been very supportive of wanting to have and, and coming up with some techniques to kind of manage urban deer populations. Uh, uh, they're actively involved in some of the translocation programs. Uh, we've got translocation programs ongoing in Bountiful. We have one in, in North Logan where where deer are being uh, they're being captured and they're being translocated to other areas where uh, uh, they may be able to survive and we can also reduce the risk. And so sportsmen are gamefully involved in that, but at the same time, they're concerned that we do these things based on representing the best available science. Uh, uh, in the case of predatory wildlife, uh, um, folks understand uh, the surveys we've done of the, the North American public 
uh, folks are, are very, very supportive of wildlife management. They're supportive of direct management, which it means hunting also means removing animals in certain cases where they, they constitute human health and safety. But they clearly want to have it focused. They want, they want information saying that, yes, this is something that we need to do. We're not just doing it widespread in a haphazard manner. Let me get to Kylie's uh, email. Kylie, thank you for emailing in. Uh, you can uh, email your comment or question in as well. We're talking about human-wildlife conflicts. A lot to talk about. We won't get to uh, every uh, species. We have talked about mountain lions and urban deer populations and uh, prairie dogs. Uh, this is an, an increasing problem or opportunity. And I'd love to know what you think. Is there an ongoing uh, problem in your area? How is it being uh, solved? And have you had an encounter with uh, one of these predatory species? That's what really gets the news. Uh, the number is 1-800-826-1495, or, or not predatory, maybe uh, urban deer or, or something else. 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. So here is uh, Kylie's email. She says, I live on 160 acres surrounded by public lands and some private property. It's rural, and the closest house is a mile away. I hardly see predators out here and rarely see their tracks. What I do see is an abundance uh, abundance of is rabbits, squirrels, mice, and pack rats. This is because of the rampant use of rodent poisons and the bloodlust in Utah to kill all predators. For years now, every winter along my road and neighboring public lands, trappers and hunters have been coming out here trapping whatever predators they can, shooting coyotes for uh, the hell of it. I guess I should have uh, modified that for the heck of it. <laughs> One uh, gentleman uh, brought his uh, very young daughter out to teach her how to hunt coyotes using a coyote call and uh, shooting toward my property. <clears throat> Over the years, I've felt terrorized when the first snow falls, knowing that the trappers would be laying their traps some right on the side of the dirt road I drive on to access my home. And had a run of dogs on one of my, my had a run of dogs. One of my dogs sadly got snapped by a leg trap. Hunters and ranchers seem to be myopic in their dedication to deer, elk, and protection of livestock, and extreme willingness to take down all predators and threaten them. Concerns over the black bear population as threat to Utah's human population is laughable, since there are over two million people in Utah compared to an estimated uh, 4,100 bears. The humans are more of a threat to the predator population than they are to us. Killing bobcat, uh, fox, etc. for fur trade is disgusting, completely disrespectful for the life of that animal. It has a right to live and feeds uh, the wasteful consumption of the fashion industry. I love to hear the howl of coyote and miss hearing them. And I'm deeply saddened that the gray wolf was killed in Utah, or a gray wolf was killed recent, in Utah recently. Seeing predators has been a huge highlight in my life, despite spending so much time out in the wild. happens very rarely. Sadly, the mentality to many of us is that uh, we have a right to take these populations to, quote, harvest them, quote, instead of revering them. That's a long email, but uh, several uh, issues there, and, and Kylie has a different point of view. Um, I don't know, either of my professors, Mike Wolf or Terry Mesmer, uh, want to take on that. She, she's, uh, Kylie says that, uh, uh, to paraphrase her words, we, we, we have a, I guess, a overemphasis on killing predators. Well, she, she puts a lot of uh, – it's Kylie? Kylie. Kylie, yeah, if you're listening. Uh, for, the first thing, Kylie, is that, you know, some of the things you raised in your email are clearly violation of game laws in the state of Utah and, and also federal laws. And so, 
if you've got that happening on your property or your property where you're 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 feeling that there's been something happening that's a, a violation or or illegal, what you really do need to do is get a hold of the local sheriff and you need to get a hold of local the conservation officer to to to, to stop that that particular behavior. But your email capsulizes a lot of the emotion uh, regarding uh, wildlife and wildlife management. There, there are strong emotions tied to it. There are strong values. Uh, uh, and, and so the, the key of wildlife management is, is, is how do you balance those? How do you balance those? You know, you mentioned your area is close to public land. Uh, you know, public land offers a great opportunity for a lot of folks to recreate and also provides a, a significant habitat for, for wildlife populations of the state of Utah. But at the same time, in the case of some species, that nexus between public and private land is very, very critical. In other words, uh, for the case of sage grouse, about 55% of our sage grouse selects are on private land. But they also use public land, and so we have this this dynamic, this mix of where where we've got a species in the case of sage grouse that that thrive and use private land, but at the same time they need that public land interface, and so so it's very difficult to separate those two out. So what we need to think about is the managing of some of those landscapes. Um, yeah, I, I'd I'd add to that as so she's encapsulated really the emotion that goes on, and particularly predatory animals are are. are they evoke extreme emotions. As I've had the luck in my career to have worked with both wolves and mountain lions. Uh, and f- wolves are basically is so polarized, the issue about it. I mean, you have basically what we'll call wolf huggers and wolf haters and this sort of thing, okay? And it goes back to ancient times, as a, just as, a, as an example. Uh, we all know the story of Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome, okay? Supposedly, they were nursed by a she-wolf. But if you go back to Latin at the time, I can't resist telling this story and this sort of thing. <laughs> Lupa was actually meant prostitute. So, and so this is the idea of how hated wolves have been in a, in a large, and it was brought over to it with us. Bottom line is, is that, that in some cases, when we have looked at Predation theory and this sort of thing. And so that there are cases where we need to actually control predators, not necessarily wholesale and this sort of thing, but we may need to do that. The only other thing I'd point out, I recently participated, I do this, I work in a program called Conservation Leaders for Tomorrow, where we actually take students and or agency folks that have never hunted, and we make them aware of what hunting is about. We're not trying to recruit people into this thing, but to try and make them aware. And one of the things that we do is a trapping exercise. And the woman that I was working with, she's a conservation officer from the state of Iowa, and her point is that she only sees so the, the bad trappers, okay, the ones that are violating laws. She never sees the good ones because they're not going to be there. Mm-hmm. And so there are laws, basically. As you may be offended by trapping wild animals, the fur trade and all this sort of thing. But actually, good trappers are probably some of the best woodsmen that we'll ever see. And there are laws, basically, that says you cannot set traps where they're going to have, uh, you know, basically is to have problems with dogs and, and cats in urban areas. You have to do that, and you have to check your traps regularly to make sure that they're not done. So there are best management practices out there for trapping. Dr. Mustmer, it strikes me you're talking about polling. I don't know if back in the day, 
wildlife managers, you're you're learning about the animal, you're 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 managing uh, how how your you know the agency tells you to, to manage. But I don't know if you're conducting polls. This is this is kind of it seems to be the future of, of management. You're 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 trying to find out how people feel about this and and maybe move the needle or but at least you have to to manage these conflicts. We have yes we. Over the past several years, we've actually c- conducted some extensive surveys of stakeholders throughout North America and, and including Utah to kind of find their ideas and perceptions about management actions. Uh, one of the things that the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources has done to kind of gather that public input, uh, several years ago, they implemented the, the Wildlife Board or the Regional Advisory Council Board, where actually when they propose or when they're looking at a wildlife management action, typically that 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 act or that uh, information is carried to the Regional Advisory Council, which is composed of all different kinds of stakeholders, including it can be conservation interest, environmental interest, sportsmen, landowners. And so those, those ideas are vetted at that regional board out of our five regions, and they eventually come to the Wildlife Board, where the Wildlife Board sets policy. Um, it's, a, it's a very good process. There are processes like that similar in other states, but I think Utah's process is fairly well-defined. One of the difficulties, however, sometimes with that process is that a lot of folks don't go to that process and don't participate. And, and uh, um, uh, stub- studies done by uh, Dr. Cranick here at Utah State suggest about 2% of Utah's public had actually previously participated in RACs. And so the division in, in, in recognizing that has done other things where they've gone out. We've talked about the Wild Aware Utah program, about their involvement in that program, but trying to create other venues and trying to get some public information into this process. For example, here in uh, in March, March 26th, the, uh, the Cache County Council is going to sponsor a, uh, a public forum on understanding urban deer. Uh, the division will be on hand to talk about the things they're doing to manage it. Uh, we'll have the municipalities involved in that. Uh, and then uh, we'll also have some discussion about the new proposed uh, changes to the urban deer rule. But those kind of activities where they're engaged with local stakeholder groups, where they're asking for information, they're asking for input, are a very, very important part of the process. And so this process is open to everyone, uh, you know, folks, folks, there, it's publicized. You can go to the DWR website to see about upcoming meetings, to see about the issues that are going to be talked about. And, and so you really, really do want to get out there and participate. The, uh, from the standpoint of hunters, hunters have actually really been very good at policing their behavior. Uh, Dr. Wolf talked about the Pittman-Robertson Act. That was legislation where hunters said, we've got a problem here. We need, to, we need to find some way to get some money. And so they agreed to tax themselves and put taxes on uh, you know, sporting equipment so that they could actually generate money for conservation. Utah has a dedicated hunter program. The dedicated hunter program is a program of committed individuals that, that not only uh, hunt and, and fish and all of those things, but they spent time going out doing habitat and management projects to benefit wildlife and not just game species. We're taking another break. We're going to come back more with Terry Mesmer, director of the Berryman's Institute at USU, and with Mike Wolf, emeritus professor of wildlife ecology and management at USU. We're talking about human-wildlife conflicts, and we want to know if you have had uh, one of those. Is, is there an incident or an issue in your area? 
And uh, how's that being uh, taken care of? Uh, what's your attitude toward that? And have you had a physical encounter with one of these predator species or any other species like uh, urban deer? Love to hear from you at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can email us to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at uh, gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break. Utah Public Radio belongs to you, and we want to know what you think. Please take a few minutes and fill out UPR's new station survey. You'll find it online at upr.org. Tell us which programs you love or those you can't stand. We'd love to know the issues and topics you want to hear more of on UPR. You can also comment about what you value about the service UPR provides and what needs improvement. Determine the future of what you hear. Your programs, your voice, your UPR. Please take the survey now at upr.org. Thanks. What do we mean when we call someone successful? I run, jump, walk, season of the audience 26 and a half miles on average on that day alone. So I do ultra marathons in a weekend physically. Everybody has days where they come to the end of the day. I come to the end of the day bone tired and victorious. I'm Guy Raz. Success as a misnomer. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Featuring lunch panini, salads, sandwiches, and soups. Full menu at crumbbrothers.com. If you're the type who reads ingredient labels, you probably noticed the phrase natural flavors, which means what exactly? Castorium is a natural flavor extracted from the anal castor sacs of beavers, and it's used to help create a vanilla or occasionally a fruity taste. All right, now that's just gross. I'm Kai Rizdal. Our series, I've Always Wondered, next time on Marketplace from APM. Monday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Welcome to Access Utah. Thanks for listening. And we are uh, talking about human wildlife conflicts. This is played out in the courts. In fact, there's a lawsuit or two dealing with wild horses and burros uh, going through the courts right now. There's a lawsuit just settled on a, uh, a young man who was killed by a, uh, a bear in Utah. And uh, it goes on and on, and human wildlife uh, conflicts increase as wildlife populations increase. We have with us Terry Messmer, who is a director of the Berryman Institute at USU. It's an institute uh, which studies human-wildlife interactions. We're also talking with Mike Wolf. He's emeritus professor of wildlife ecology and management at USU. We'd love to hear your story. 1-800-826-1495. Are you interested in this issue? We heard from Kylie in Moab. 1-800-826-1495 is the number. We just have another 10 minutes or so left. Uh, upraxis at gmail.com is the email, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Dr. Wolf, off air, you were talking about an interesting program that you're aware of uh, where you can certify your golf course as wildlife-friendly. This is, I guess, a, a kind of a more on the positive end of the, of the yeah. spectrum. This is a, a program, it's, I think, offered by the National Audubon Society, actually a program that uh, will try and make golf courses kind of wildlife-friendly. Uh, and in this particular case, as uh, the Bridgerland Audubon Society, we have a member of our board, Hillary Shugart, who has taken the initiative on this. And again, she's very interested in the Logan 
River Trail because of all that's gone on down there. And the golf course, of course, is adjacent to that. And quite frankly, the golf course, as storied as it is, is a re, you know took over wetlands more. And so those same things are there. So, but the, the idea is, and the golf the the golf course management people are are quite supportive of this, as about trying to make this a a, a somewhat wildlife friendly kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Dr. Messmer, I'd like to I'd like to jump into the sage grouse issue and and frame it this way: uh, Is it possible to get a resolution on something so seemingly intractable? This is a species that's uh, hasn't been listed. The, uh, I guess that's the controversy. And then there there are people who are saying if, if you if you list this uh, species, then I'm going to you know take big economic losses, and and it's it's just seemingly intractable. The, the sage grouse probably as like the wolves and is, is one of the iconic species of the West. I mean, when people think about Western lands and think about sagebrush, they think about sage grouse. Uh, we have two species of sage grouse in Utah, the Gunnison sage grouse. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service here a few months ago ruled that the, um, the Gunnison sage grouse uh, uh, will be threatened, listed as threatened under the 4D rule, which still allow the states to have management, and so that affects Utah and Colorado. The other species of, of, of wide, more widespread is the greater sage-grouse. Um, sage-grouse biologists that have been studies the population for the last, you know, 30-some years still agree that there's there's large enough landscapes and other widespread population that conservation of the greater sage-grouse is still uh, is still possible. In 2010, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, uh, basically reviewed all the data at that time, and they said, well, the species warranted listing, uh, but it was precluded because of higher conservation priorities. And so what they did is put it into a, a parking lot called the candidate species lot. Well, subsequent to that and other decisions, they were sued by um, uh, several groups the that wanted that process to change that, uh, you know, there are some species, for example, that are in that parking lot that have been there for quite some time. And so in a court-mediated settlement, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service agreed by September 2015 to rule on the status of all of those species in that parking lot, including greater sage-grouse. Since that time, actually well before that, in 1996, for example, in Utah, we had an active process started through local working groups. Uh, we've accumulated science over the last couple of decades, as other states have done that. And so all the states have developed to put together their state management plans, which specifically drill down through the weeds, so to speak, and they identify what are the specific threats and what are some of the things that we can do to mitigate those threats. Uh, that's happening in the other 11 Western states and also in the Canadian provinces. Um, and so basically there's a plan in place. Uh, the BLM and the U.S. Forest Service are undergoing a land use and resource management revision process where they're looking at all of their plans out there and to find out what kind of things might they do differently relative to possibly oil and gas leasing or other things along that line to uh, uh, mitigate the threats. Most recently here in Utah, uh, Governor Gary Herbert uh, issued an executive order which basically uh, puts the focus of the executive branch and all the cabinet positions, all the state agencies to help implement the Utah plan. And so all the states, all the parties that are working are extremely optimistic in this. Most recently, the Natural Resource Conservation Service contributed uh, 
committed over $200 million over the next five years to work with private landowners and the partners to implement conservation actions. And so those not only are actions where we're looking at maybe enhancing the habitat, mitigating the risk of wildfire, but also putting in place conservation easements. And so uh, to date, there's been about three quarters of a billion dollars spent on, on sage-grouse conservation actions. And so uh, um, it seemed like, you know, I'm, I, I'm very positive we're, we're moving in the right direction. Uh, uh, I think these measures are, that are being put in place are very significant uh, and they're very long-lasting. And that's one of the measures that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will have to consider in the final decision, certainty. Is there certainty that these actions that are going to be implemented or are being implemented will continue and that they will have a positive effect on the species? We just have about five minutes left. I'd like to move on to wild horses and burrows. I think both of you have studied those. Uh, court cases are happening right now. So this is an example of, of, of how this uh, you know, a lot of this uh, goes. Actually, we have a history of court cases. Uh, the one that was probably the most significant was back in 1976. It was called Kleppe versus New Mexico, which was an issue of the Supreme Court, where basically the state of New Mexico grounded up some wild burrows, and it was actually challenging the uh, authority of the federal government to protect wild horses and burrows. And that case ruled actually in favor of the of the, the uh, U.S. government, and so continuing as so we have the federal government, the BLM, and to some degree the Forest Service who are supposedly managing wild, well, I say wild advisedly because they are feral, they are exotic animals basically that were not here at the time of European uh, settlement. Uh, the big thing is that the original Wild Horse and Burrow Act in 1971 mandated that there was supposed to be somewhere between 26 and 30,000 animals on the range. Right now, we think that we may have uh, as many as have, you know, 50,000 animals there. And so there are, it's an overpopulation. The agencies are mandated basically to remove those animals. They can't do it lethally, so they end up as oh, in enclosures and stuff like that. But some of the other protectionist groups that I'd argue is are saying that, yeah, well, they're trying to shut down these roundups and things like that. So, uh, yes, a, and, and, and there have been several other kinds of issues that have gone along with this. It's a very difficult kind of thing, and it's another one of these issues that's polarized because uh, probably no more than anything else, wild horses and burrows are an iconic symbol of the Wild West. Mm -hmm. Go back and think, now I'm dating myself to the movie with Clark Gable and Marilyn Monroe called The Misfits mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And they were rounding up wild horses and burrows. And so this is, and so people have done this and yet Hollywood actually became very much involved in uh, the original legislation. And, and, of course, they had this woman, Wild Horse Annie, Thelma Johnston, who mobilized school children. And so it's an extremely emotional issue. And uh, so you can see why these things come down. And so that's uh, – it'll be interesting to see uh, how, how we deal with this. So We just have uh, two minutes left, Dr. Mesmer. Definitions are important here. Isn't it? You find these wild horses invasive species – 
It, it is. And when, when we look at, you know, the wildlife management, basically the focus is wildlife. And so, you know, uh, Dr. Wolf mentioned about the species there. They're, they're not wildlife from the standpoint, but the idea that they fit that invasive because they are species that, that were introduced to the system. And so, but through time, what's happened is we've developed this this love of it, this 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 attitude, this value about their place on the landscape, and so I, no one's going to argue that there there shouldn't be a place on the landscape for those species and other species we've talked about. But the question is, is how do you balance that with the different values, with the different perceptions, with people's attitudes, in such a way that you can in fact sustain those populations, um, and you can mitigate the impacts so that they might be having on the natural systems. Just finally, just one minute left, uh, so Dr. Messerberg, are we seeing a shift in, I think we're probably seeing a shift in how wildlife managers are trained. Very much so, very much so. And, and uh, Dr. Wolf brought up at the concert Leaders for Tomorrow workshops, which is a very, very important workshop, is wildlife managers today have a broader perspective in terms of looking at all ecological relationships, but it's very, very important that those managers have uh, the ability to communicate they have the ability to work with diverse publics. Uh, you know, I, I, I share this. Uh, you know, I got into wildlife management. I, I joke because I didn't like people. The idea that you'd be out and you'd be managing wildlife. But reality, one of the fields that probably has the most interaction with the most diversity of stakeholders are the wildlife managers. Uh, in one day, you could be working on an urban deer situation. The next day, you could be working on wild horse and burros, and then you could be trying to take somebody's bat out of their out of their attic. And so, the dynamics of of wildlife management have changed so much, and our managers are being prepared for those things. Uh, we we still have a lot of work to do, but uh, I think the future is bright. We will leave it there. We've been talking about human-wildlife interactions, human-wildlife conflicts, and we've been talking with Mike Wolf, Emeritus Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Management at USU. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. And you may yet appear again on Zesty Garden. I know bats is a Well, we did that a while back. We could do it again. You could re- return to it. I think people like talking about bats. And uh, coming up March 12th, so the, not the program this week, but the week after, uh, Terry Messmer will be back on Zesty Garden talking about voles. In, in the garden, I think that's where the conflict happens. There, garden and uh, backyards, uh, uh, golf courses. We're uh, we're at a point where uh, voles are somewhat cyclic, and so we're at a couple population peaks. And so uh, we talk about uh, the potential for management and what are some of the things folks need to consider. But some things are loving it. The short-eared owls yeah. out around Benson. Uh, harriers and this sort of thing as they're yeah. a wonderful prey species and so some of these things are just they're having a heyday yeah well we'll hear about that in zesty garden and of course uh, i'd like you to listen to access utah as well so we'll be back tomorrow uh, terry mesmer is uh, director of the barryman institute thank you okay. thanks for listening today to access Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. When winter arrives in Utah, a number of our bird species hit the road, some flying thousands of miles to Mexico and Central America in search of a warm winter home. But there is one notable bird that actually migrates to Utah in the winter, the bald eagle. In general, birds migrate because of seasonal food shortages. Think of the hummingbirds that rely on flower nectar and insects, which Utah cannot provide in winter, but which are abundant other times of the year. The same is true for bald eagles, whose main food source is fish. 
Winter comes on strong in Alaska and Canada, freezing lakes, ponds, and all but the strongest flowing rivers. So the birds travel to seek out the relatively mild winters found farther south. One of the largest birds of prey you'll see in our Utah skies, a mature bald eagle can have a wingspan of six to eight feet and stand almost three feet tall. Only the golden eagle rivals it in size. Pairs are thought to mate for life, and they are also responsible for the largest nests of any bird in North America. One record-setting abode measured nine feet wide, 20 feet deep, and weighed more than two tons. And to think we almost lost this incredible species. Since DDT and hunting heavily affected bald eagle numbers in the early half of the 20th century, the birds have made a truly remarkable comeback. From a low point, around 4,000 individuals in the lower 48 states, they are now thought to number in the tens of thousands and have been removed from the threatened and endangered species lists. Perhaps as their comeback continues, Utah will once again see these majestic animals make their massive nests here, fishing in our many rivers and lakes year-round. For now, though, aside from a few rare exceptions, bald eagle enthusiasts will have to make the most of their short winter stay. To observe bald eagles, consider a visit to the Great Salt Lake Nature Center at Farmington Bay. Every year, the bay plays host to hundreds of eagles from November to March, and while this milder-than-usual winter has brought in fewer numbers of eagles, you may still be able to catch a glimpse. They will likely be headed north, so don't delay. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. For more than 30 years, working to preserve the wilderness at the heart of the Colorado Plateau. More about protecting Utah's wilderness heritage at suwa.org. Utah Public Radio belongs to you, and we want to know what you think. Please take a few minutes and fill out UPR's new station survey. You'll find it online at upr.org. Tell us which programs you love or those you can't stand. We'd love to know the issues and topics you want to hear more of on UPR. You can also comment about what you value about the service UPR provides and what needs improvement. Determine the future of what you hear. Your programs, your voice, your UPR. Please take the survey now at upr.org. Thanks. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio, a service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. Time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for the TED Radio Hour coming up next.